What's up, everybody, and welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. My name is Rich Kleiman, and I'm here, as always, with my main man, Gianni Harrell. What's up, Rich? What's up, brother? So, we back at it, back in the office, back in the frigid temperatures of New York City. How you feeling? Feeling good. Feeling good. You watched the playoffs this weekend? I did. I watched some Buccaneers. I watched the Little Chiefs. Me too. I'm in this pool with some of my friends. I went... Uh, five and two, I think, or four and two. Yeah, there were six games, four and two. Oh, uh, what, what's up with your league? Did you win your league? Nah, I didn't win. I didn't win. Jay-Z won, man. Got to give it to Hove. Yeah, Hove won. So we've done this league like 15 years. I haven't won in so long, but I do have two chips. But it's been a while. All right, but let's not, let's not talk fantasy football. I'm still torn up over that. But our interview this week, incredible conversation, good friend of both of ours, Mr. Arye Borkoff of Lion Tree, and he's somebody that I've learned a lot from, and we obviously have a lot we're cooking, um, 35 Ventures in Lion Tree, but Arye as an individual, as a visionary, has really given Kevin and I a lot of fuel for new things we want to do and inspired us greatly. So this combo was exciting, and I love, as you know, we always talk about it's cool when we have a friend of ours on, because I get to ask questions that you're just not going to ask in a regular hang and learn more about somebody that's close to you. So I hope everybody really enjoys it. This guy's a real tactician, somebody that if you listen close, you're going to learn from everything he says because he's got um, that perfect sauce of vision and experience. And when you're in that like prime of your life and you're deal making and you've seen and done so many things, but you still so clearly see what you want to do in the future it's powerful and i think you can feel that from the interview so i hope everybody enjoys hope everybody keeps listening obviously boardroom.tv download subscribe our pods everywhere you listen to your podcast but check this out long interview so lock in if you're on a car ride or something don't get off at that exit because this is a long interview uh <laughs> we'll speak to everybody next week g my man It's great to have you, and obviously, like I am, uh, I'm very lucky to be able to have the access to many of these conversations with you. And I'm hoping that today, the listeners will be able to hear a sample size of what I've kind of grown to know about you. Um, you, to me, embody truly um, what an entrepreneur is, and there's different definitions we've talked about throughout all of our shows, but. I do know that we have a ton of aspiring entrepreneurs listening to the show. And I think a lot of times I'm remiss not to ask to explain exactly what our guest does so our listeners can fully understand the scope of who I'm talking to at times. So would you do me the favor, please, of introducing yourself and what you've done and what your business is and your titles today so our entrepreneurs know exactly who I'm talking to? Of course. I mean, first and foremost, friend of Rich, supporter of Boardroom big big fan of the show big big fan of the company everything that you're doing at 35 ventures you and kd and uh kind of a believer in the entrepreneurial spirit i would say and the insurgency versus the establishment overall i would say that's how i've been that's how i've been raised that's how i've grown up like as comfortable 
uh, in the boardroom as I am on the streets. And all that tension comes into play and everything and that uh, we do at LionTree, that I do, that we're building. Um, but uh, to answer the question more specifically, I mean, we, we're deal makers. Uh, we make uh, dreams happen. Uh, we're, we try not to be too transactional around it. Um, we try to be more transformational about the deals that we do. So when we see things uh, that we can correct or make right, uh, we act on them. And uh, sometimes they come to us and sometimes we come to them. So I'll give you an example. We do mergers and acquisitions. Uh, we're in the advisory business. Uh, we merge uh, companies or advise on the merger of companies like Viacom and CBS um, because that is a belief in more scale in the media industry is better. Uh, we uh, engage in the merger of Comcast and NBC Universal. Uh, we also are in the process of doing the merger of MGM and Amazon. Uh, we took uh, help take uh, the uh, Warner Media properties and HBO and Warner Brothers out of AT&T and merging with Discovery uh, Communications to create $140 billion company, um, but also the upstart companies. So we also invest in companies uh, that are like the wonders of the world in audio podcasting and uh, the uh, gimlets into Spotify and the companies that are like in the upstarts of the world, like we both uh, were in Whoop. And our whoop uh, and uh, and the companies that we think are the companies of tomorrow. So we are uh, both seeing things in the U.S. and globally that can be uh, brought together and taken apart for the betterment of value creation. And also, we try to invest in the future companies, but always with a entrepreneurial, pro entrepreneurial focus and putting the right people at the forefront, not ourselves, and try to kind of help grow the pie and the whole digital economy as it transforms to do that properly, you have to always be learning. And that's all about relationships and creativity and deal making. And we love the creative industries and the digital economy. We probably focused on uh, only those industries, broadly speaking, whether it was newspapers back in the day and today it's like the metaverse and everything in between uh, music companies and podcasting companies and healthcare technology companies, financial technology companies, across the globe and you kind of see things everywhere from Stockholm to California and everywhere in between, you know? So, and it's funny because your answer, you know, I think is representative of one of the million answers you could have given. That's kind of your genius is that, you know, on paper, LionTree is an investment bank. You're an investor. I think the reputation that you have now um, is of somebody that truly is a deal maker, somebody that can bring two visions together to find one kind of uniform vision. And when I was introduced to you, um, I was introduced by a mutual friend and they gave me no kind of warning except the two of you guys will hit it off. And he had never introduced me to someone before and he was right. And I think, you know, instantly it was kind of the way in which you spoke and how you kind of visualized what you were seeing and could present it like you were painting a picture. And I was always able to communicate like that. I can receive information like that. And I talk like that. And when you meet someone who's similar, you know that they know that you're both similar right away. And I think we both felt that way and we were patient in starting to work together. And I'm sure patience was a big part of your journey. I know it was for me as impatient as I was at times. And to get the reputation that you have now of this deal maker, this rainmaker, somebody that is so connected and 
and a pioneer of kind of moving the needle into the future, you didn't start by saying, that's what I'm going to do for a living. And I'm sure that that job even existed when you were younger. Where did you grow up? Um, and how big was business in your household as a kid that this was that this kind of is so much a part of who you are? Um, so like you probably, like no one did what I've done before me in my household. Um, there are a lot of people that do what I do now. Um, hopefully not in the way that I do it because like you being original is everything. Otherwise it would be boring for me to do it. Um, I feel like in my household, uh, I was, you know, one of one growing up, uh, everyone in my household were in, uh, were, were immigrants. I was first generation American. I was born in Palo Alto, California, even though most people would identify me more as like a New Yorker. Uh, because I've been here for 25 plus years. Um, but now I obviously travel around the world and I use New York as a hub, um, you know, to go to Europe, to Latin America, to the Middle East, et cetera, to Asia. But I was born in Palo Alto, California. My parents were professors um, and they had a mug in the household that said, I have a BA, a BS, a JD, an MBA, and a PhD. And at the bottom, it said, now all I need is a J-O-B. And I was like, <laughs> let's just cut to the bottom. I'll just take the J-O-B. Well, I have to go through all the other stuff. And I came out like, and I said, let's just go and get a job. And I, I went from Palo Alto, California to Baltimore, Maryland. And, uh, and that was a transformative experience for me because I went to an inner city public high school in Baltimore from a Jewish day school growing up. And I, uh, I loved it. And I was, uh, you know, obviously an athlete playing, not obviously, shockingly athletic, I would say. <laughs> uh, and I know you and I played hoops and tennis and uh, football throwing together. And um, But like I, I, I really grew up in uh, inner city Baltimore. And uh, I get a lot of respect for Katie on that because he was in Prince George's County and I was in real Baltimore, and, um, <laughs> and uh, which I take a lot of pride in. And then I went back to California for school at the University of California in San Diego the day after I graduated. New York City, capital of Wall Street, and said, let's go. And I got into junk bonds, high yield bonds, Smith Barney. And then the first day they said, okay, you're going to focus on uh, media, telecom, and technology. I said, I have no idea what those things are, but let's get to work. That's how it started. So it's a crazy, you went right to New York. I, I was talking to somebody I met on vacation whose son is 21 years old. They're not from the city. They're not from New York City. And they're in their final year of college. And when I asked him what he was doing next year, before he even told me the job, he was like, he's got his eyes set on New York City. And it feels like, you know, I take it for granted being that I grew up here and live here. I'm sure, you know, you don't necessarily pay attention to how much a draw New York still is to young people as you did maybe when you were younger. But people still feel that need to get to New York. Um, but when when you came here, did, was it one of those stories where like you came to New York, you had really nothing but an education and no real network and connections? Because that the, that's the thing that surprises me so much is people that want to come here and don't know a soul. That's it. That was me. I didn't know anyone. And uh, you got to put yourself in a vulnerable spot, um, which I felt comfortable doing because I had a strong core, strong family, strong level of self-assurance but also felt very vulnerable and and kind of honored to be here like meaning i felt like i remember looking at the newscaster and at night saying does that person realize like how special 
it is that they get to like broadcast the weather from like New York City. Like that's a special spot because that's the best in the world of what they do. They get to be here. And like, as soon as I was here, I was like, I'm not giving it up. So I'm going to do everything I can. And I didn't know, I didn't know anybody and I didn't even know the city. So I would like pick a different part of the city every day and get to know it while I was looking for a job. And, uh, and I got to know the city and I got to know the, the, the environment and I got to know, you know, how I was going to get a job and get comfortable. And then you build it from here, just like I was building my life in inner city, Baltimore, a place I wasn't comfortable. And then you build character and you build your comfort zone and then you feel more secure. It's like, I view it like a trampoline. Like when you're a trampoline and you're jumping, if you don't feel comfortable on the foundation, you're not going to go very high. But the more comfortable you feel with the foundation of that trampoline, you start jumping without worrying about the foundation being weak or strong. You know it's strong. You go as high as you can. There's no limit anymore. And that's how I felt. The more, the more secure you got in New York, the capital, the higher you could go with no ceiling. And that's mm-hmm. how I felt about being in New York. Like, it's up to you. I want to put myself in a position where the control is in my destiny, in my hands. And that's hard, but it's in your hands. And that's entrepreneurial. It's competitive spirit, same as playing sports. So was that, what was that skill set? Was it that, was it that fearlessness um, and that entrepreneurial gene that you knew you had that instilled that confidence? Because you were the first from your household. So I'm sure that your parents weren't telling you, go to New York and become a big wig in finance. But you knew you had something, right? You identified it early in yourself or was it something that you built up as college went on and you got your education? It's, it's definitely something inside where you feel like, and everyone that's listening or watching, you know you have something. And it probably goes back to like 12, 13, 14 years old, where it's something inside, whether you were like not getting the exact grades everyone else was getting, but you still knew you had something and you were going to play the long game around it. And it wasn't going to show up in grades like everyone else, but it was going to show up later. And for me, it was that. It was basically, it was a bet on yourself that there was something about myself that I knew that I could lean into, um, that I could not play with the herd, that I could, I'd be comfortable playing against the herd. And that was a bet on who I was. And at some point, it would come to fruition, and I could play a contrarian view of the world. And then to do that, though, you can't just leave it to chance. You never, you have to always plug the holes. That goes to self-awareness. You got to be honest with yourself. To me, it happens at three in the morning. Three in the morning to this day, I'm up for about an hour, just below the consciousness. And I'm like, whatever happened the day before, I'm plugging those holes. Like, I blew that. I blew that. I blew that. Self-awareness, self-correction, self-growth. That's the path. Self-awareness, self-correction, self-growth. If you don't do those things, you are static. And I will say stagnation is decay and motion is value. So if you're moving yourself forward by doing that process, you are growing. And then you're like, then you're competing. But if you're like, and I always felt like New York was a moving sidewalk. So if you're just walking, you're falling behind. But if you're on the moving sidewalk, you're keeping pace. And then what do you have? But if you're just walking, you're falling behind. Yeah. So like you, ha- you have to be ready to play in the big time. And then at some point you realize like when you're on the football field, are you alignment? Nothing wrong with it. 
or are you the quarterback? There's the same 50,000 people looking at both of them, but the quarterback is the one that feels the pressure. And can you handle that? And are you comfortable with it? Uh, both take a tremendous amount of skill, tremendous amount of athleticism, but the quarterback's getting the pressure and the bar. And that's a, you can complain about it, and it's a blessing and a burden. Yep. At some point, you realize that's the game you're on. And yep. then if you're on that game, you got to own it. And then you keep moving. And I felt that way. You know, the thing, it's like LeBron, there, there's, there's LeBron James, Mark Zuckerberg, these people that are born with this like life generational gift um, and can get wealthy at 19, 20. They, they visualized this since they were younger. You know, LeBron probably since he was in elementary school wanted to be the best in the world. That gift was there. That's a magical gift. There's no recipe to fix it. You just work hard and you hone that gift. Mark Zuckerberg was able to have this moment in time, generational movement for the textbooks. And it all happened at 22, 23 years old. And a lot of times entrepreneurs dream big. It happens fast. But the hard part, and it probably breaks so many of them, is you're visualizing and you want this. I want to be a basketball player when I grow up. I want to run Disney when I grow up. I want to be a fireman when I grow up. You visualize it, but then all of a sudden the realities set in of like, I see it, I want it, but there are so many steps to get there. And, you know, I think some people just put their head down and do the work. Some people are dreaming big only, but when you dream big and then put your head down and do the work, the magic can happen. And I have no doubt that's who you are, but what was the dream though? You get to New York, you've been handed media and, and television, and you got to learn a language and you are in this like city where you are learning as you go. But what was the the end zone? What was the the yard marker, whatever the saying yeah. is? What were you holding? It, it's a great question. I mean, I didn't I didn't have a rigid end game because, like I would say, if you promise the great white hope, like you're gonna fail. And plus, it's very arrogant to come in and say, I'm going to be the greatest showman ever. And if you come in with that, first of all, I felt like it's limiting. Like, here's an arrogant statement. Would you ever want to be president of the United States? And you say, why would you limit me by those borders? Why is leadership constrained by those borders? Why can't you lead globally? Like, I don't like any of those constraints. Don't yep. give me a rigid view of anything. Like, just go one foot in front of the other right now and then see where it takes you. What I felt instead was my first decision was, I remember, do you want to be a generalist or a specialist? So if they were giving me media technology and communications as a specialty, but I didn't know anything about it, hone in on that specialty and know that over the course of time, the people I would meet around that and the content I would learn around that and the fundamental knowledge I would have around that would over the course of my life make me an expert more than others that started later and i would be able to give something back around that and become an expert over time if i stuck with that durability and then i would be valuable around those things so stick with that and then put myself in mother other riskier positions because i would be able to put myself in a room with something to offer yep. so isolate something that i had a specialty in 
And then I can put myself in other areas or products like equities or balance sheets or debt or boardrooms or geographies and say, hey, I have, I have something to say and it's valuable because I had a specialty somewhere because I picked it up early and I stuck with it. And the people I knew that network would grow like stocks. You know, I will say, no one knows, but if you have an iPhone, you can go to your contacts and look to the right-hand side of your contacts, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, the bottom is a pound sign, and then scroll all the way down at the bottom, it tallies your contacts. And you just look at that every year and you can look at your contacts growing. Is it growing? And what kind of people are they? And no one even tracks that, but is your network growing? Yeah. And is it the right kind of people? And just kick people out that don't have integrity, kick them out. Otherwise, yeah. grow that thing. You know, that's a stock price. That's your stock price. Yeah, and, and the information, like you said, there's, there's no cutting that corner. You know, I think there's nothing more attractive than somebody sitting in the boardroom with you and they have all the information. They have the answers, they've studied it, they know it. And, you know, I think there's a level of immaturity that a lot of entrepreneurs have in thinking that because they get it, that they know it. And when you get it, you can understand it and you can speak on it. But when you really learn it and know it, then there's no holes. And I learned that over time. And it's true. It's like when all else fails, if you can just learn what was given to you, what is my assignment? What's the worst that'll happen if I absolutely knock it out the park with what I was tasked to do? There is no worst case scenario. And I think that that is something that, you know, you obviously had very young, but I'm sure was tiring at times as well, right? Because you were in finance. What was the roadmap? You know, you're at Lion Tree now. Um, I'm watching Succession the other day and your firm is being mentioned in the middle of the show and you didn't visualize this, but what were the steps, you know, prior to Lion Tree? What was the kind of, um, yeah. the run of we jobs? Don't like those, we don't like those hard Italian pillows, apparently. Uh, and then that last episode, if you watched it, that was a big surprise. That was a lot of, that was like a zeitgeist moment for us. Um, it was a great episode too, overall, but the, um, no, like, so from Smith Barney, uh, I was a, I was a junior and then I felt like I want to take a bet on myself. I went to, uh, CIBC Oppenheimer, the high yield group, and I said, I want to be a senior analyst, uh, covering those same industries. And then from there I went to UBS in 1999 and I stayed there for 13 years, did high yield and I picked stocks and equities. And then, uh, then after a while I said, okay, what else can I do in media and telecom technology? Went to banking, eventually was able to run TMT, global TMT investment banking, had a lot of great mentors there. And then they said, okay, well, the TMT investment banking group is doing really well. R run all investment banking uh, in, at UBS, which was a great job, uh, great seat. And UBS let me move around like that because again, you have that expertise and then you could keep advising people privately versus publishing it publicly. But you got, I got to know the markets and you could get your face ripped off in the marketplace if you're wrong. That teaches a lot of self-correction, but then that's a good training ground. Everything was kind of methodical. Then you could go advise companies who had to do it privately where all the chips are on the table and dollars are massive. And, you know, the competition is really, really intense, even though it's private. And then from there, I said, okay, well, what are you going to do from there? Are you going to go from that position to management and try to be a full-on manager all the way at UBS? And, and I had the training in fixed income and equities and banking, and that was a good training ground. Or do you want to keep those relationships intact 
and then know all that foundational value and become more entrepreneurial about it? And do you have a vision for how to build it differently? And at that time, which was 2011, 2012, I said, man, you can take the oldest form of this banking world, which is the merchant bank back to the 16th, 17th centuries on the streets of Europe, where people work with each other, entrepreneurs, par excellence, but marry that with the newest economy in formation, the digital economy. And I love that paradox. Go back to go forward. And I love those paradoxes. And then take the youngest generation of people into a formation of a new company. And if I can attract those deal makers, I have great partners that can execute those deals and make sure nothing's left to chance, like at Goldman or JP Morgan, and we can execute those deals in the boardrooms. Can we bring all those things together and create a new merchant bank of this new century to unlock these industries globally? And I was like, that's a risk. And if people like thinking backwards, people probably thought this guy is nuts. But I was like, we got to do it big. We can't do small firm, small things. That was the first thing I was thinking about. Like, if we do small firm, small deals, we'll fade into oblivion. Yeah. We can do small firm. I love nimble, small deal teams, great group of people, but we got to do big things with it. Impact was my goal. Yeah. And so yeah. the, I said, like, the first few deals we did, we merged like Liberty and Virgin for 24 billion sterling. And these clients believed in us. I call them like entrepreneurs believed in us, not even clients. And I said, we did the biggest deals from the smallest amount of square footage in these offices. And we were like smoking cigars, having tequila and doing these deals seriously. But then we executed it, no leaks, high quality. And then we never marketed ourselves at all because we wanted the, those deals to be the tenfold. And then like Verizon, we did deals with and then Charter buying Time Warner Cable. And we were able to then build up a valuable reputation. Then we said, okay, let's start investing in our people in Europe and investing in deals and see what's around the corner and then attracting more people and then meeting people like you. And then we can collaborate with people. And we were never like, we got to do everything ourselves. Like let's do it with the right partners and, and learn. Learning is like, you know, the expertise, but you have to all be listening. Like I'll tell you a funny story. Like just on this vacation, uh, he probably won't mind me telling it. Like, um, I was having lunch in a small group and I'm sitting next to Mike Tyson. Okay. And we're, we're sitting there and we're just like, you know, having our vacation lunch and everything. And in the middle of it, we're laughing and Mike Tyson leans over and he goes, I don't know why Elon Musk is going to Mars. And I said, what? what? And he said, no, I don't know why Elon Musk is going to Mars. Why Mars? And I said, well, what do you mean? We're, we're just talking about, like the weather a minute ago, we're having fun talking about boxing. <laughs> and I go, I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, there are two planets where it rains diamonds. Those are more interesting. And I go, there are two planets where it rains diamonds. And he goes, uh, yeah. And I was like smoking a cigar and, and he goes, Hey, look it up. And I, I Googled it. He's right. There are two planets where it rains diamonds, not Mars. Oh my I guess God. They are. Let me guess. Saturn. Nope. Mercury. Nope. All right. I don't want to expose my lack your of wife, your wife. Your wife's gonna want you to go there right away. <laughs> I mean, that's for sure. Where uh Jupiter? Nope. Neptune and Uranus, right there on Google. You can find it. Range wow. diamond. You can't get there, it's too far away. 
That's wild. All right, Iron yeah. Mike. You learn something new every day. Mike Tyson's a smart guy, though, right? Did you you spend time with him? Interesting. Yeah. So was it, how scary was it? And how much pushback did you get from UBS when you left? Sitting next to Mike or back, back to my career? <laughs> it's not, it's probably scary as hell sitting next to Mike, but how scary was it leaving um, UBS? If Mike was your boss, it would have been scary. It was scary because you have this view that when you're sitting at a big institution that it's safe and that being entrepreneurial is risky. And not just safe but like by the way a lot of people aren't in a fortunate position to choose those two things like sometimes you're entrepreneurial because you have to be yeah like you have to start something i had a choice to stay in a great seat and that's even scarier sometimes because then it's like i was very conflicted because i really want to have the maximum impact and like why would i be such a schmuck to leave that kind of seat would I be, am I an idiot? And everyone always says, like, they think of an entrepreneur and they think of Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates dropping out of college and they think of a 20 something as an entrepreneur. Those are the exceptions. The ones you read about are the exceptions. The average entrepreneur, average is someone in their 40s. Yep. Okay. That makes more sense because you have enough accumulated knowledge that now you have, you can be dangerous to be an entrepreneur. That makes more sense. You just don't read about those things because it's average. You read about the exceptions and you think that's the norm. So like the, the person that most people fail if they leave in their twenties. Yeah. So I felt, you know what? It's actually riskier for me to stay. And I was like in my late thirties, I was like, I was 38. And I was like, I'm ready to go. And I'm prepared. And I actually thought it was the right time for me to go. And I had a view and do it. And you know what? I took a risk, but I felt like it was worth the risk. And, uh, but I never felt like, uh, oh, I wish I did it earlier. Or I wish it, it was the right exact moment. Yeah. For me to do it. I always I need, say yeah, I need that training. Entrepreneurship is not a job title. It has to be rectified. And, and it is completely a mindset because you're right in that was my example I tried to give earlier with LeBron and Mark Zuckerberg is that those are the exceptions, obviously the ones that get the attention. But even if you don't go up through an organization and that's your entrepreneurial journey, the chances are most of the things you start in your 20s and 30s will fail or will lead to just a new opportunity and a new chance. But it isn't till all of that experience is kind of brought together with the confidence, with the foundation and the trampoline example, that you can do it. And that, like you said, for most entrepreneurs happens in your 40s, which is why if I introduced you to somebody, I would really just say entrepreneur. But at the same time, someone would say, well, he runs an investment bank. That's not an entrepreneur. He's a CEO. No, it's the mindset of how you got here and how you view the boundaries. You don't have any. There is no kind of wall or line that you restrict yourself, as you said. Um, but part of that then becomes you identifying other people like you, other entrepreneurs. And again, I think that is a gift 
and something that I like to pride myself on as we look at companies to invest in is I think when you were able to sit across from somebody and start to think, can you see this person and this company doing what they're saying they're going to do? You know, it's pretty simple. There's so many things you have to look at under the hood. But at the end of the day, you're betting. You're just betting, right? You're, is this person going to make it? Can he make it? Can she make it? Can this company make it? And you obviously have to do that at the highest level when you decide what deals to take on. And when a, when a business presents itself to you and you have to make a decision on, all right, this is a great opportunity. Um, and it's probably, and I would imagine, has never been based solely on economics for you. What is your process? Like, what was the process? You know, going big, I get it. But what was the process in terms of the kind of companies and founders you, you looked at when you started and you look at today? All right, so a couple things. First of all, I don't think of it as betting. I think of it as pattern recognition. So like you have to be able to see things. Predicting the future is everything. Predicting the future is everything. If I told you, Rich, what is going to be on CNBC at the market close tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, you would trust me and you would you know, make a lot of money. And that's because I would be able to say those things based on some predictive patterns. And similarly, if I said this industry is going to move in this direction because of these predictive patterns, how do you create those predictive patterns? It always starts with the macro. We all spend 90% of time thinking about the micro. What is going on in your world? It is largely irrelevant. The macro, those like tidal wave trends is most of it. So you got to go as far and wide to get that perspective as you can and then live in your core. But go scrape the edges of the earth for that perspective and then come back to your core. Okay. But you got to get perspective as, as much as you can and then know how to recognize when these perspectives are changing. And then the other thing is when everyone leans in one direction, challenge it. Like, I always challenge the herd mentality. So one of my mentors, John Malone, said, like, conventional thinking is typically right, and it feels that way, but seldom profitable. So it'll feel great to have a blanket around you because it feels like it's good. It feels like everyone's saying the same thing, but you're not going to make a difference. You may be wrong thinking like everybody else or different with everybody else, but you're certainly not going to make a difference. So you gotta, you have to create impact by having a little bit of an against the grain mentality. So for example, I used to, when I used to pick stocks, if I saw everyone with a buy recommendation on the stock and I would talk to somebody and he would tell me the same thing or he or she would say the same bullish thesis on the company but with no new information. I'm like, this is at risk. Everyone's just overly enthusiastic for no incremental reasons. Or conversely, if there was like a lot of holes in the company, I'd be very interested because that means the delta, the delta is interesting. If someone is going to take a risk and upgrade the stock and say, this is interesting, that delta is everything. That change is the impact. You know, the herd mentality is not that interesting. Everyone's saying the same thing. Same thing as that staying in New York. Everyone leaves New York and a few of us like you and me stay and you're like, well, that's a bet. We're making a bet. And that bet's interesting. And then yeah. all of a sudden you're like, that pays off. One of the easiest bets in the world, I thought. You know, give me a gimme. You know? Yeah. I'm right? with like, you. Do you. No brand. Do you, 
do you think that all successful people that you've met, all the men and women you've met, have a little bit of that going against the herd mentality built in? Thousand percent, thousand percent. And it doesn't. It, at the moment, it always feels like risky. And after the fact, it was like, oh, that was easy. Like we said it. We said at the end of the year, Lion Tree is going to start accepting crypto from our clients or entrepreneurs as an option of fees uh, in addition to cash for some of our clients. And it made news. Like we're the first ones to say that. And I was like, oh yeah, that was another easy one because being the second person to say that is worthless. Not a story. Right. But for me, I was looking at thinking, I was like, this is going to be easy. Yeah. This is going to be an easy one because of course we should do that. Yeah. Because that's where the world's going. And of and by the way, it, it just expands our universe of potential clients to work with. And we believe in it. And it doesn't change anything from what our core business is at all. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. So like you look like it's it's kind of like it's kind of like women can vote. No brainer. Yeah. Gay marriage. You know, like you know things are gonna happen like that. You go back in time and say, what were the obvious things and who was gonna be first to say it? Being second or third, you're like, who cares? Nope. Well, you know what? So much of it has to do with your confidence because you know, and and the reason I made the um kind of uh, analogy of it being a bet is that you you take all that information when you're gambling you know the experience if you've watched this team you've watched this player you know what happens when it rains you know what happens when the running back is on a grass field you take all of that then you have that like emotional thing built in on your own experiences like oh man Dallas never wins on Monday night when they play the Eagles you start taking your own memories then you actually make the bet right you make your decision and so many times you'll hear someone go, I knew the Eagles were going to win, but I was so scared to bet it. So I took Dallas at home on Monday night. I feel like it's the same way, whereas like in your 20s or 30s, you may have said, how can I take crypto? Like, how can Lion Tree be the first one? How can I be the first one? How do I know this is real? In your 40s, 50s, you're now like, I'm not even blinking. Like, right. Of course, I'm the first one. And of course, I'm going to do it. And of course, everyone's going to do it. Um, And because of that, you know, you have to be first. And that, like you said, comes with all that experience. And then with the experience, the confidence. And if you don't get the confidence, then, you know, that's where I think sometimes the mindset isn't really built in everybody. Right. And part of it has to do, but it's not, it's not cavalier. It has to do with a couple of things. One is you have to know the fundamentals. You have to know what's going on fundamentally. You have to know the facts, you have to know the circumstances, you have to know the past, all those things. A. B, you have to put yourself with the people that are different from you. And that cross-pollination of people creates the energy, right? So you and I are fast friends, obvious friends, right? But no one would have necessarily thought that you, me, and KD would have spent the better part of the pandemic hanging out together. Um, And then we pop up afterwards and everyone's like, oh, you guys are not only buddies, but business partners. And then afterwards, they're like, well, that's obviously clear. We raised a lot of capital around it too, around a creator economy thesis. But like, and then you explain it and it makes a lot of sense. 
but no one would have thought about it ahead of time. But we, we did that energy around different kinds of people that have a threat of alignment because we, we saw something, right? And then the gladiator spots, right? Like, yep. and all those other things that make sense. So you got to put yourself in cross-pollination areas, not sit in that homogenous territory, right? And then know the people. And that kind of is what the merger business is about, saying, what is some company missing that another company has that if you put them together, creates growth or creates a scalable dynamic that leads to more sustainable assets and structure that shareholders, and that's the, the, the nice thing about the markets is that you have a metric system that creates a metric system of growth that can be endorsed. You know, that's where there's a scorecard, just like sports. Yeah. When I grew up reading the papers, I only listened, I only walked, I only read two sections, business and sports. Everything else was opinion. Business and yeah. sports had metrics. Everything else was opinion. That was cool <laughs> for me. You know? Yeah. That is very interesting. That's true. Um do you think there's a misconception about what an investment banker's role is in business? Because it feels like I've gotten different answers from different people historically. For sure. For sure. I mean, there are all kinds of everything in life, right? There are different kinds of managers, different kinds of players in sports, different kinds of bankers, right? Like, um, you know, bankers sometimes are in it for the deal and then they're gone, right? And then it doesn't really matter what happens after the fact. Right. Like we try to be relationship driven as our disruptive long tail force, meaning um, we we have I have to wake up the next day and still be there, Uh, not only because it's my company, but because I'm trying to build a company that has reputational value beyond me. And not, I'm not trying to create a monument or an edifice or one of these like you know arrogant things. It could just be a concept, but it has to be that it survives the day, it survives the deal. So the relationship has to like pick up momentum beyond the deal, and that creative deal making and setup of an ecosystem is the governing force for us, which is the kind of banking that cares or banking that realizes people's dreams which is like kind of what I justified to my parents when I remember the day I had to say to them, you guys are professors. And I was scared to tell them that I was going to junk bonds and finance because they were going to look at me like Wall Street. That is like not a cool thing to do. And, and just like, you know, they would have said, you know, why not do go get your advanced degree? And I said, well, I get to find entrepreneurs and help them get financing, high yield financing, you know, that they would not otherwise get to realize their dreams. And I still believe that kind of stuff, right? And that's the, and I think the whole firm of Lion Tree believes that. And that is my my friendship circle. That's what we all believe, right? That's the creator. That's why we hang out more with creative people and entrepreneurs and artists and players and uh, and even like heads of state that like really yeah. want to build, you know, impact. Than just people that are doing straight finance, but you know that's why the technology industry is a facilitator for that. Independence, technology, markets, capital—you put all those things together and you get innovation. But then you realize that the innovation itself is not the be-all end-all. You have to appreciate the classic companies, also. Like what's Walmart doing? What's Disney doing? What's AT and T doing? 
there's a lot of magic in that. Like, how do you move these companies forward into these new economies, right? Yeah. That's like yeah. Verizon. Like, how do you bring those companies into the world? JP Morgan, right? That we're into like today. Is there a digital currency there? You know, how do you tokenize these companies? How do you marry the innovation and the classic, the paradoxes? I like the cross pollination of people. Same thing with companies. Yep. I like you mesh these things together and you create some magic. And you have to be there to bridge those things. I like that. It's amazing because for people like you and I who live in this like hybrid mind and we want all different people around us from all different walks of life and we see puzzle pieces and some outlandish business all the way here on the left could fit perfectly with this thing all the way here on the right. And now all of a sudden we're in a time where that's who's winning, the people that are sitting at the center of all this tremendous opportunity coming at all different angles and know how to figure it out. You know, and I think like that saying, which your parents start saying to you as a kid, it's always one of the two siblings or if you're an only child, it's probably that kid has it, is like figure it out. And the deal making side of it is a lot of like, you gotta figure it out. And I think that delineation between creative and entrepreneur or creative and business mind is in that clear moment where like here is creative person or here's this piece of art or this subject and someone's got to figure it out and do that transaction. Um, and the time now that we're in, I would imagine not only from the place you're sitting, but just being a fan of business and fan of innovation and opportunity and creatives. Where does this moment in time, let's say from your 10 years in the 90s during the dot-com boom and the kind of onset of the internet, how different is the climate just overall putting the pandemic aside? Um, I think it's different. I mean, I've always grown up in like innovative industries, I feel like, but I feel like it's different because I feel like the new generation of people and we have most of our people at the firm younger than, you know, 33 years old younger than 30 years old, I feel like the new generation coming out of school feels like they can't play in the normal industries, banking, legal, like what's the point of going through the normal school system? What's the point of going through the normal programs of banking programs, going into the stock market? 10% of people own 90% of stocks. And they're thinking, what's the point of entering a race that's already been won? Apple's a $3 trillion market cap. What's the point? That is informing the mindset of creating NFTs, a new asset class, crypto, a new currency, metaverse, a new internet world. It's not just innovation. It's creating new worlds to play in. And when you appreciate it that way, then it's saying there's a cartoon, a New Yorker cartoon saying, let my generation introduce itself to your generation. It's connecting the generations. And they're also saying, by the way, you haven't really given us anything on climate that we're proud of, civil rights we're proud of. They haven't solved anything politically either. So why are we even paying attention to you guys? And when you appreciate that perspective, there's this like Latin expression, audio alterum partum, partum. Put yourself in the mind or shoes of the other. Like Once you listen to their mindset around that, it totally makes sense. They're like, we're starting over, guys. So I love that world. That's why yeah. I, my Instagram profile is an ape. I bought an ape and I'm like, I'm living in that world too. 
because I want yep. the, I want my company to live in that world. I have a guy covering NFTs, metaverse, and crypto working as closely with me as the bankers covering the Disney's and the Walmart's and the AT and T's of the world because I want to link the two generations and understand it and bridge it. You know, and so and but doesn't mean that I'm that I think there's as much value and strategic ballast of value there today as there is in the classic companies. I want to see how I can help the classic companies understand that too. I want to, I want to connect it. I want to, I want to flatten the curve. It's such an interesting time too, because, you know, I said putting the pandemic aside, but I don't think you can, because I do think that the, the speeding up of the metaverse and the NFT market and crypto in general happened because I do believe exactly what you said. When you completely challenge what has been, everything in the physical, as it relates to the metaverse is broken. It doesn't translate. It's not like orange is not orange in the metaverse. It can be whatever you want. And I think the scary thing is, and exciting thing, is for young creatives, like you said, who are saying, well, we have just as big a race issue in our country as we ever have. We're falling apart on every other level. Why? Why am I listening? Like you said, why am I doing all this? Well, where, like you said, can you now question why to infinite measures in the metaverse? And if you're in a company, though, how are these companies starting to look? And obviously, some of them do it way better than others. But when you take classic company, introduce them to the metaverse, how open-minded are you seeing these companies on reimagining the economics, reimagining how we distribute, reimagining new verbiage, things that you can't, when someone says, I don't get it, how can an eight be that valuable? You realize instantly like, oh, we got to start from the very, very, very beginning. Yeah, it's, there's, I have in my year and letter, a whole section called cross currents because these paradoxes are leading to these cross currents, which is living between these generations living between the classic and the innovative. There's a lot of uh, mindset innovation among these CEOs of the classic companies, but it's scary because they have to live in the world of the shareholder who they don't necessarily get paid to take that risk off the bat. Like if a CEO of a company like uh, Viacom or Discovery or Disney bought the apes, like would their stock price go up or down depending on what they pay for it? Like it may not. So like yeah. the shareholder, that's why I say you have to give up something to get something. There's got a lot of corporate simplification going on and it may be a tougher time to invest in these companies along the way. And so you have to kind of walk the, the shareholders through these, these kind of moments. And so that's why there's private company investments that you're doing a lot of 35 ventures that we're doing some of as well. And we're collaborating on a lot of things like that. And like there's other forms of capital like the SPACs and other things like there are other vehicles emerging to play into the chasm of these two worlds, right? An opportunity before it's ready for shareholder prime time. So there's like, there's like a, it's hard to invest in the bridge, Yeah. but it's scary for a CEO to kind of move from one to the other. Um, and also there's regulatory dynamics of what the governments are ready to say. That's cool. I understand it. And, you know, one of the things that Facebook you know, got hit for is like they didn't bring governments along with that innovation. And that's when they got sued by the FTC and they got cleared of it. But then like you have to kind of bring these partnerships along with you in this new world. So there's a lot of consternation. It's not all like panacea, even though it sounds great sometimes. There's a lot of 
cross currents, right? You gotta, how, do you, how, do you, how do you make money in the cross currents? I love the cross currents. I love the friction. Because yep. the friction is where there's opportunities and there's crevices to fill, right? That's where we can play, not just the straight ups. And then I say, to resolve the paradoxes, you got to go in to go out. You got to go down to the roots to resolve the growth. Yep. That's the trampoline again, right? I like those things. You have a different philosophy for the metaverse and NFTs as you do crypto. I mean, obviously, crypto, I think, for more traditional public shareholders is probably easier to wrap their head around than the arbitrage of NFTs in the metaverse, right? Do you see these as two like separate industries in some way as it relates to what you do? Yeah, I think they're separate. Um, I mean, they're related in the sense of the cultural dynamic is related. But I think they are separate uh, concepts. All of them are separate. Um, I mean, NFTs, I would just rename as unique digital assets. Like NFTs, you know, obviously non-fungible tokens, or some people would say, they're so tired of talking about it, it's like, not fucking today anymore. <laughs> you know, like, let's not talk about it anymore. Just call them unique digital assets, right? Like, that's what, that's, we have to change the nomenclature of these things, right? Like, unique digital assets could be art, unique digital assets could be, you know, uh, IP, it could be you, it could be individuals, right? But the capital formation around that starts to pull them together more in, in a more interesting way to create more assets around those or more interesting that are more pooled together. Um, like, uh, can you imagine a world where, let's say it's not you, but let's say it's KD, and I could put a value or NFT or unique digital asset on KD that I can invest in. Everyone here can take KD public and I can invest in KD. You know, why not? Right. Uh, or I can elect the next president of the United States based on an NFT value and a vote. Right. The two metrics in politics, money and votes. What do you put a value on the presidential election and put an NFT value on the presidential election and a vote, not just a vote. Right. There's a lot of different things you can do with those things. The metaverse, I think, is more like um, a great forum for fashion, entertainment, culture, music, um, e-commerce the creator economy, and if you, but you should play in hybrid world, physical, virtual, metaverse. Can you work interchangeably between all three of them? If you're a retailer, if you're an entertainment company, if you're an experiential company, remember like Formula One and Netflix has those examples. That's the, that's the media of it and the actual event. But is there a virtual or metaverse version of that too, or a commerce version, or is there an NFT studio around that too? With the players, anything character driven, you can slice and dice all the way through. But then, can you go into banking in the metaverse? Can you go into real estate? Can you go into pharmacies? Can you go into healthcare? Can you live in both worlds? I don't really see the goggles as much as you know, as much as you know, playing on your phone. And then the last thing is your devices. Like, is there a phone that people are going to walk around with that's just going to be a phone that is a, a crypto phone? You know, that you're just, it's a payments phone and you're just functioning into Ethereum and you're just living in a commerce crypto world just functionally and moving around your worlds 
that doesn't have all these other apps and everything else, but you're trading stocks in a crypto world and you're paying for things with commerce yep. and it's a crypto phone. I think there's all these different devices that are gonna come out now around those things, but you have to deal with the classic companies also that are still moving into this world that have a lot of cash flow still. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you sit very much at the center of that. And I think, you know, there will be a lot of responsibility in some ways that falls on you because of how you've traditionally operated, which is what you said when you do the transaction, you stay involved, that's who you are. You'll always be a networker and you see through these visions. And I think in some ways, if you leave the deal after it's done, you really aren't finishing the deal because you got to see through the future of why you brought these two companies together. So I think you'll be very instrumental in translating. I think some industries will be completely disrupted. The music industry is one that I've said could answer this like broken system of how artists have economically fared. And obviously the major label business is adapting and they'll continue to adapt. They're not going to get blindsided like they did in the Napster iTunes era. But what other industries like music do you think are going to get completely kind of flipped on their head by the metaverse? Sports. Here we go. I mean, do people, are people fans of a team, a player, a highlight? I mean, the TikTok generation is looking for highlights, right? Like, um, and the highlight, the short form content is a format now versus the long form game, right? Like, um, and uh, like, are people fans of, you know, I mean, the Nets are great, but K people will watch the KD highlights. Uh, it kind of goes back to fantasy and sports and gaming and betting the intersection of sports and gaming and the commerce function, the transactional function of sports leads into highlights more than watching a whole season, a whole league. You know, there's a company called Buzzer that we're an investor in that alerts you to the kind of hot moment of the game of any sport at the moment where it is transactional, where it means you should start betting on it over the top. And that's where you should pay attention to it. That's even more than a highlight. That's like a moment you should be betting on it anywhere it is. So I think sports is ripe for massive disruption, more than music yep. even. Um, and then media. Obviously, like no one has a better look in at media than you. What are you, kind of some of your projections and predictions for not just where the media goes as it relates to the metaverse, but just where media as a business is going? Uh, the other industry that relates to media is education. Education is the least digitized of all the industries. Now that partially is related to uh, top-down factors like uh, politics and teachers' union issues and so on. But coming out of three years of virtual uh, schooling environments or hybrid environments, um, like that is going to lead to a lot of K through 12 disruption, direct-to-consumer environments. You can get on your phone access to more information today than world leaders had 15 years ago. And like the cost of education has gone higher and higher for people. Like, why do you need that accreditation, so to speak? And so like education is gonna get massively disrupted, I think as well. Uh, and a lot of political dynamics around that as well to plan to as well as technology. So, but media, media is, uh, people are spending a lot of money on media. Um, 
content on a professional premium quality way. Disney announced spending $35 billion to compete with Netflix uh, as part of their direct-to-consumer strategy. Um, at the same time, the uh, user-generated side of the business, not just the premium side of the business, and the creator economy is taking advantage of these platforms that were created, and the younger generation is going to town, right? So like consumers ages 13 to 17 spend more than half of their time consuming media on these platforms, whereas only um, you know 20% of the time for people over 55. You know, and so like that's a whole different thing. And plus, the you know 20 million people in the U.S. and 50 million people globally are part of this creator economy where they're making you know $100,000 per year, uh, making money for themselves as creators on these platforms. And so that creator economy is the user generation and the premium parts of the economy, massive amounts of money being spent and made on the media side. That being said, it's still a scale business. And the Disney's, the Viacom's, the Discovery Warner's, the Comcast of the world, the Fox of the world, are they big enough on their own versus the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Apples to do it on their own? Or is there more consolidation coming? That's kind of our job to figure out. Um, and uh, and it's, it's a global game of scale. You know, so yep. that's a lot of money to spend if you're on your own platform. So. And how important will brand be in the future of media and being able to kind of distinguish what your point of view is by what your brand represents? Brand has been important from day one, uh, but refreshing the brand with new uh, content is uh, a new quality is everything. We used to be in the uh, centralized world of media where you gathered around uh, at night and watched the same thing. And in that world, the metric was love. Everyone just wanted to be loved. Now we're in the fractured world of media. Everyone has different things going on. No one's centralizing anything. In that world, the universal metric is attention. You don't necessarily get love from everybody anymore, but you have to have thick skin to get attention. You know, you have things said about KD or said about Cardi B or anyone, uh, and some things are truthful, some things are not truthful, but you get attention. But to do that, you have to be authentic to who you are. Because it's not always going to be love, and it's not always going to be truth. Yep. And you need and, and and the consistency, and doing it over and over and over again. Every single time the sun comes up, performing and creating, that solidifies your brand. Yeah. And it brings you the attention you need. It brings you the attention you need. Um, I mean, obviously, all of this is part of the reason why we have gotten so embedded in each other's organizations and why you guys made an investment in boardroom and why we've lined up infinite in our SPAC. And obviously, you know, we've talked about this in so many meetings in the past that, you know, the SPAC was not a plan and we inserted ourselves into it or that you had a SPAC and you needed a partner. This was birthed out of us realizing what interests we shared, what visions we shared, not just you and I, you and KD, like you said, and then realizing that this vehicle was the right thing for us. Um, the SPAC business outside of ours got so much attention over the first 18 months of the pandemic. Has it leveled off and become an industry that you're excited about now again in 2022? Yeah, I mean, I think like everything, uh, 
you know, a good thing becomes overheated and goes to the extreme. And then it has to get uh, corrected and right sized. But it's always been a good thing for the right reasons because SPACs provide flexible capital, strategic capital, can be highlighting a thematic like a creator economy in our case, family capital, um, global capital, an alternative to an IPO system that has had flaws to it. And now we'll reconcile with certain things that are, I believe in the SPAC model all the way through. Economics will shift like our SPAC has a different tenor of doing the deals in terms of you know having a certain amount of months versus others because uh, we have the you know the the uh, the, the lion tree times versus the uh, the deal business, but a lot of the uh, the uh, the SPACs that have been created won't be successful, right? So like, I think the right optimized deals will get done through SPACs, and they make a lot of sense. But you have to create uh, those deals through the hard work of putting them together. Um, yeah. They're more flexible, but I think that like, uh, and I believe that we'll always want us back in the ecosystem in different ways. And we're going to do a few more this year and ours will be very successful through our partnership. But like, but I don't, but I think like even for us, like boardroom is part of our partnership. The SPAC is part of our partnership. It's a broader structure, right? It's not yeah. just about, like you said, it's back. Um, and infinite name is all about collapsing traditional structures that are finite and breaking down the social mores and the, ecosystems of the past and making them more infinite where value can be more durable and more long, have more longevity to them in the same way that you've built your business, Katie's built his business and we built our careers. And that's what we believe in that content picks up infinite value when you have the greater economy. That's our metaphor, right? We like that. That's part of the same thing as facts. So I think, I think that I think you have to just keep revisiting these kind of vehicles until you until you kind of tweak them to optimization. And, uh, you know, we think they're here to stay. And then the, like it's the 80, 20 rule, same thing with the greater economy, you know, 20% of the people will be successful. 80% will not. Yep. It's funny. Um, it, it does feel like, um, the creator economy, right. And when we first started speaking about it, a lot of times in business, there become these buzzwords and they're really hard for people to, to define and they get caught out there i always notice those people like i i can consciously be aware of when somebody is saying something but doesn't really know what's underneath the hood and i think we all knew that that phrase as it related to our vision was spot on and we needed a name to rally like the team to understand it as well and i remember you called me and told me infinite and we just i was like hell yes that's it that represents how we're thinking. And I think now, like you said, NFTs as well, metaverse, it has to be a component of your business. And SPACs are a tremendously like viable vehicle as part of your business. And I think I learned a great deal from you in that and see it in a whole different way. I see it in such a positive light. And I'm really excited about ours, obviously. But you've done a lot to change that. I think the name really set the kind of like stage for Kevin and I of how we have to go and look at this. And, you know, branding and everything you do is important internally, externally. And I think that went a long way in terms of like the excitement around what we were trying to do. But we've always been in sync that we've always been in sync. Like as soon as like things have happened with us, it, it always just kind of matched up at the same time. 
we always ratcheted up and and stayed in motion and elevated our conversations, right? Like, yeah, we never stayed in the same spot, you know. Never. We kept moving pretty fast, you know. Definitely. Well, I think you know, to people that like to move fast, it's actually like more uncomfortable to move slow, you know. Like, yeah. You know, do you walk up the escalator or do you let it take you? No, I'm walking all the time. Me too. I can't. I'm, I'm a jackrabbit. Me too. I'm flying up the escalator. I never understand people that park themselves on it. Um, all right. So two things before you go. Um, one thing is you talk to me about errors in your life. What do you do at a yellow light? Do you speed up or slow down? I'm right through it, man. Yeah. That's where I think AI has problems. For auto- I mean, sorry, autonomous vehicles has problems. Because how do you program some people that speed up, some people slow down in autonomous vehicles? It's hard. <laughs> It should just be an option. Like, are you aggressive driver or are you safe driver, period? Um, so you talked to me about errors in your life. And that really stuck with me. And I, Because there are these clear errors. And they might not always land like in a form of a decade. But you have these errors in your life. And one can't exist without the other. So you can't knock like how you thought when you were younger. But you also have to kind of respect the error you're in now. And you can't look backwards. You are crushing it, right? Like you said, you're mentioning your company on succession, which I, I don't say that lightly. Like there was a, like, it was almost like you had, they needed the perfect company to embody the level of deal that this was. And that goes to show what you've done. And then just your name individually and what you've meant for the brand. When people talk about you, you're having an incredibly great run in your life. You've had a great professional life, period. So you know that there's a future era in front of you. Right, it could be bigger and greater. It could be different completely. Do you yet know what that like third or fourth era in your life is, and how you want it to be? And are you working towards that in some ways, like you were when you were younger, working towards this moment? Yeah, like I said, I don't have a rigid goal. I have a few different options and toggle points, like uh, like door one, door two, door three. You always want to give yourself a a few different pathways. Um, and you have to really respect the arc of life. Like if you fast forward yourself 10 years later or 20 years later, your priorities, my priorities will definitely shift. Like the hustle will be different in every decade and what your, your priorities will be and your level of calm will want to be and who you want to spend your time around will narrow in and become more powerful. Like you start your freshman year of you know, college with a thousand friends, you end with five, right? That's kind of like the way life works, I think. It narrows in and gets more powerful, long and deep, you know? Um, I wanna invest more behind the deals we work on and the opportunities we see with bigger numbers, more conviction. Like Warren Buffett said, diversification is a sad excuse for a lack of conviction. <laughs> You know, like, so you don't have to be like diversified everywhere and spray and play, like go narrow and deep with the things you really believe in and make the bet and doesn't get as scary because you just know it. And then over time, you want to kind of like season those assets and then be more strategic about them. And I always call it like 20 and 20. Who are the 20 people that you want to live with for 20 years? And I'm interviewing for those 20 people all the time. I like that. You know, and 
and I kind of want to figure out um, how to narrow that in and let the company pick up the rest. Like, I don't want to take that away and not, and, and we'll take the company with me. I want the company to pick up the rest. So knowing when to kind of step off from certain the day-to-day, not retire, but step off from the day-to-day because I'm in motion. Like I'm always like at the company, like, hey guys, how much can you take of what I do? Because I want to do more and different things. That's a different energy than at other companies where like, this is like, this is mine. Don't take it. I'm like, no, no, you take it. Mm-hmm. How good can you be? Because I want to do more things yep. and other things. And so those things are more geographically diverse. Like I want to be, I think the world's like kind of moving eastward a little bit, also more time in different parts of the world. Um, and I want to also spend more time with, you know, fewer people long and deep, but also have room for the new and the curious. I want to meet new people that I don't know yet that are yeah, going to teach me yeah. things, cross-pollination. And I want to invest behind the winners in a chunkier way over time. Yep. You know what's so important? Before I ask you for your final question here, the staying in touch and, and staying relevant, you mentioned it earlier, like how you have your ape as your icon and just what you want that to represent as it relates to your company, but also just I know how in touch you stay with things within the cultures around you know, the sectors that you operate, which is at this point damn near everything. A lot of people get to this point in their life, they have the experience, they might have money, they have all of the kind of network that they need. But if you lose touch and with young and new, you're doomed. That's so crucial, right? Yeah. But you also don't want to be an ageist. Like, um, like oh, explain that. Explain there, that. There's a, re- there's a reason why there's wisdom accumulated as you get older, too. Right? Like, there's a reason why Murdoch sold it in his 80s and he's 90 years old right now. And he sold just in time to Disney. Whereas in his 60s and 70s, he was like, there's no way I'm selling this company. I'm building this thing forever. And there's a reason why Malone at 80 gave up the vote at Discovery as part of a greater good for Discovery and Warner. Whereas he would never have thought of doing that earlier, right? So there's wisdom there to capture while you're taking on the new from the 20s somethings or even someone in their teens. And you want both. And that the benefit of being where we are is if you can capture people from the arc of life there and the youth coming up and live in the here now and know both and then do, and then go global with that and then pick up CEOs and heads of state and know how the world of countries and the worlds of companies work and the world of startups at the same time. And, and, and the world of industries work across border while other people are landlocked and the world of common good countries like China and total democracies work like so-called the U.S., let's say. But know that the U.S. may be the oldest democracy in the world, not the youngest anymore. And that changes your perspective. Like, there are three European countries that are younger than the U.S. Yeah. Like, Germany, Italy, and Belgium are younger than the U.S. Think about that for a little bit. Like, like you, you know, there's a lot to unpack around these things. 
So constantly living in the core, knowing where you are, but scraping for understandings of where the world is, is very interesting to me. But like the NFT world and the crypto world, the metaverse world, in the full extrapolation of what it could be and where it could fail, creates a lot of dispersion. Digital currencies are here to stay. Bitcoin, not so sure. Yep. That's yep. my call. So, and, and, and I also think, by the way, I love the date, 22222. 2, 2222. 2, 2. 2. 2022. February 22nd, 22. Oh. <laughs> I just feel like for some reason, you know, hopefully COVID will be over by then. It's like a magical number. 22222. <laughs> You're right. I know it's been, uh, a pleasure for me to talk to you and learn more about my good friend, even though we hang and speak all the time. You know, I really learned a lot about your kind of journey and a bit about, you know, just how you see this space right now, because it is overwhelming. It's overwhelming for all founders and CEOs. It's exciting, but, you know, you have an incredible way of making sense of it all. And I think that um, that conduit between young and old and knowing how to navigate that, you've been tremendous at. So uh, I'll give you another one, you. by the way. Sotheby's, we sold Sotheby's. That was a great uh, yeah, that's pretty fun transaction. You're going to be thinking all night. This at 3 a.m. when your subconsciousness, you're going to be thinking yeah. about. And then uh, if you go to London and you see in Piccadilly that big uh, flagship screen called Ocean Outdoor, uh, we own that screen. Uh, and we own a bunch of those digital screens for the great master team in the UK, Netherlands, and uh, Stockholm and the Nordics. Those digital outdoor screens are cool and they're 3D and all kinds of things going on there and like we'll have to put we'll have to put you on there and we'll put the boardroom uh out of office podcasts on the digital screens that'd Say be fun. no more i'll hold yeah. you to that my friend <laughs> this has been great man i've been looking forward to this for a long time and i'm happy to be a supporter and uh i hope you didn't ask me on here just because we're an investor it occurred to me i asked you on here because you are uh you're a trailblazer, brother. You know that. And I think people are going to be excited to hear your story. And um, I'm excited to see what we're going to do together in the future. Yeah, well, I uh, I can't wait to get back on the basketball court, play some hoops, and uh, hang out some more <laughs> in person. And uh, stay safe. And uh, I'll see you soon for some, uh, some good uh, chef cook dinners. Sounds good. Thanks, Arie. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Boardroom Out of Office. Subscribe, log on to boardroom.tv, and we'll speak to you guys soon. Let's move for 92.